Well, good evening, Harvest. It's good to, good to be with you, as always. Uh, before we get to our sermon text tonight, uh, just a couple of quick uh, details. Uh, I didn't get in the bulletin on time, but we are first going to read Ezekiel 36. So you can start turning there. And I wanted to give um, ahead of time for any note takers, just two points for two verses of the sermon text. So the first uh, point will be exiled by election, and the second will be elected by God. So I invite you to stand, and we are going to read Ezekiel 36. And we're just going to read verses 22 to 32 of Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put and the new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations." Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. And then the text for this evening we'll be exhorting on is First Peter, and that is just verses 1 to 2. First Peter 1, verses 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we have much to be thankful for. Lord, you have given us so many gifts, great and small, and and we thank you for these, Lord. We thank you for for gifts like the weather, for, for our church building. But Lord, we are most thankful this evening for the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. We ask for your grace this evening, Lord. Uh, give your servant words to speak and give us all ears to hear, Lord, for both the speaker and the hearers are weak. We need your grace, O Lord. May grace and peace be multiplied to us. It's the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray. Amen. All right, please be seated. 
All right, so 1 Peter, just 1 and 2. And, and as I said earlier, the first point is exiled by election. So just to read verse 1 again, he's, Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and, and Bithynia. This is Peter's greeting to his readers. And his greeting is a little bit different than ours, right? A lot of times, somebody may ask you, how are you? And they don't care how you are. They're just saying, hi, that's how we do it out here. Or they'll say, hey, buddy, and it's not a comment on your friendship. It means that I forgot your name. (laughs) If I were to go out of town for a little bit, and I came back, and you said to me, hey, stranger, that might be a nice term of endearment. If my wife called me, hey, stranger, I would run, probably, is what I would do. Hey, stranger would not be a term of endearment from my wife. And so, but this is how Peter starts his letter to these, to, to these people. He calls them stranger in one sense. The ESV uh, says to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that translation of, of exiles, but just synonyms that we could use for the word exiles are strangers and sojourners, um, whereas Paul writes his letters and his introductions to the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, or to the saints of Ephesus, Peter says to the strangers of, of the dispersion, but this is not a fake greeting, like if I were to ask you, how are you? And I didn't really care. That's not the kind of greeting uh, Peter's giving. And he's certainly not calling them strangers because he forgot their name. He's intentionally calling them strangers, exiles, or sojourners. We, we can kind of pick and choose here a little bit. But, but this term, exiles, strangers, sojourners, it's a loaded term throughout the Bible, and it's used all over because God's people, as we heard this morning, uh, God's people are a pilgrim people. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's people are, are a pilgrim people. And so we could find this theme from the Pentateuch to the prophets, and even here in First Peter throughout the New Testament, and the, the nerdy seminarian in me wants to go through every illusion and instance of, of this, but you could thank your, your good pastor that we're not doing that tonight. And that part of the sermon got left on the cutting room floor. But, but, I'm still a seminary nerd at heart. So uh, I, I do want to talk about Abraham because I believe Abraham is a helpful, but maybe a surprising example of what it means to be a sojourner and an exile in this world. If You remember, it's a little bit of an obscure story right in the middle of Genesis, but Abraham's wife, Sarah, has died, and I doubt anyone knows the Bible trivia of where she's buried. Does anybody know? Is is Sarah buried in the family tombs? Is she buried in in his land or under the maple tree in his backyard around a white picket fence? No, Sarah is buried in the tombs of the Hittites, of of foreign people, of not God's people. Abraham says to the Hittites in Genesis 23, 4, he says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. 
And, and I think it's a little maybe jarring or, or surprising to us that Abraham is considered a sojourner. Abraham's a foreigner. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego makes total sense. Those guys are exiles. But how can Abraham be an exile? Abraham left his home country in Genesis 12 for a better country that, that God promised. And still yet in Genesis 23, towards the end of his life, he's still a sojourner. He's still an exile. But the reason that Abraham can be an exile, can be a stranger or a sojourner, is that he, he's, a pilgrim, he's a pilgrim person. He's part of God's people who are pilgrim people. God's people are always on pilgrimage. Hebrews 11 verses 13 and 16, still talking about Abraham, but the Old Testament saints in general as well, says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so what the story of Abraham teaches us from Genesis 12 to 23, here in 1 Peter, Hebrews 11, is that the world is not our home. This is not the place that we're supposed to Live in, in a sense, we are supposed to live here, but this is not our inheritance. This is not our ultimate home. Both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints were sojourners, exiles, strangers looking for a better country. Likewise, so are we. Our city, so to speak, our city is not San Marcos, our city is not Sacramento. Our city's not Washington, D.C. It's not even Bakersfield, for as heavenly as Bakersfield is. But we have a heavenly city that we get to look forward to. That is our ultimate home. In all seriousness, this city is not ours. Washington, D.C. is not, is not ours. We have a heavenly city. And, and so this is why Peter calls the addressees of his letter, and by extension, he calls us exiles and sojourners. Because as Christians, we are exiled to the world to live as strangers in a foreign land. So th this descriptor of, of exile, it's not just a title, right? Again, he, he didn't just forget their name and is saying, hey, stranger. Um, it, it's not some sort of Christian uh, cliche, like, hey, brother, can often, can often be a cliche. No, this is, there's a lot of intentionality and meaning here. And this isn't just in verse 1 or 2, but Peter wants us to remember this theme throughout his letter. If you look down at verse uh, 17, chapter 117, he says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Maybe look over on the next page to chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And so we want to take this theme of exiles and strangers 
seriously. I, I, I don't also want to fit it into everything. I don't want to say it's under every rock and, and bush in, in this letter, but it is no small theme uh, for, for the addressees that Peter's writing to or, or for us. But the goal of 1 Peter is to address Christians as exiles in a foreign land and instruct them how to live as exiles and sojourners. And so Peter's ethics, or the way he writes his letter, is a lot like Paul. So we may be used to, uh, when we read a Pauline letter or hear a sermon on it, the paradigm of imperative and, or sorry, indicative and and imperative. Um, Right, so Peter, like Paul, gives us the gospel first, and then his ethics. And so Peter does tell us to live an ethical life, but he's not telling us to just be nice for niceness sakes. He's telling us to, to act according to the gospel because of the goodness of the gospel. The goodness of the gospel is why Peter uses the modifier elect here to go along with exile or to go along with sojourners. We're not merely pilgrims. We are pilgrims. We're not Merely strangers or exiles, although we are, we're elect exiles. And that word changes, changes everything, really. This combination of elect exiles is only used in the Bible right here in, in 1 Peter. It's a unique combination. And at least to me, at first it comes off a little bit like an oxymoron. So on one hand, we're chosen by God, but on the other hand, we're homeless. We don't have a home here on this earth. And so God's election sort of becomes like a double-edged sword. We're united to God, but divided from the world. And this is the beauty of election, the good news of God's election towards us, that once we were strangers to God, we were enemies of God, we were estranged from him, and, but we were at home in this world. The good news, though, is that God has chosen us, elected us, saved us and sanctified us, Now we have a home in a heavenly city. Now we are at peace with God. But the backside is we're strangers in this world. We don't fit in like like we used to. We don't don't do the same things or laugh at the same jokes. We are strangers. uh, We're strangers to this world. And so again, Peter's goal in these first two verses throughout much of, of the letter is to show us that we're sojourners in this world because... Because we have been chosen by God. And so Peter is not here to say that the Greeks, the Romans, the Democrats, the Republicans, the pandemic, the economy, those things did not make us sojourners. Those things did not make us exiles. We are sojourners and exiles. We are strangers to this world by the merit of God's election. And so God calls us to be his children and not children of the world. This is why we're sojourners. This is why Abraham was a sojourner. He was not satisfied with the things of this world. Even the land of Canaan, he was not satisfied with, but he was looking forward to a celestial city, and so should we. And and so at the end here of of verse 1, after talking about this idea of elect exiles, first uh, Peter adds... Uh, we are elect exiles of the dispersion in uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
The, the primary identity of the exiles, though, is not found in these regions. They're not primarily known from being from Pontus or, or Galatia. Their primary identity is found in them being elect by God. And this word for dispersion here, a lot of English translations just bring the Greek right over and say diaspora. And again, as I said earlier, there are a lot of places that we can go with this word dispersion that uh, I'm, I'm using a lot of self-restraint to not take you to all these places. Um, but, you know, one place we could chiefly go is, is Babylon, right? As I said earlier, it's easy for us to see Daniel and his friends exiled in a foreign and strange world. And that's, that's a helpful comparison to what, what Peter is trying to communicate to us. But it's not a one-for-one. There's a difference between us sojourning in this world and what Daniel and his friends did. We are not just like Israel looking to get back to our promised land. We don't have a promised land to get back to. We don't have a golden age to, to, to get back to. We are also not like Israel because we're not sojourning because of our disobedience, right? If we read through the prophets, God said, you're disobeying, you're disobeying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exile you. But that's not what happens to us. We are exiled not because of our disobedience, but because God's election toward us. So the word election here, hope we're beginning to see, is, is key to helping us understand not only the word exile, but the nature and purpose of the sojourners in the dispersion. Exile, kind of grammatically speaking, uh, elect, elect modifies exile and, and dispersion. Elect is kind of the, the ruling word there a little bit. Um, so we are not sojourners in the various lands, or, or these, these peoples aren't. Peter's addressees are not sojourners because of their socioeconomic status or because of the way an election went or who they voted for. They're not sojourners because the public schools got so corrupt and made them that way. They're sojourners because God chose them because they are elect by God. But Peter's going to take this word election and move it on. So while it does apply here to the word exiles, to the word dispersion, he's also going to use the word elect here to talk about, um, to talk about the work of God. So we're not merely elected to be exiles in this world, but Peter also wants us to know we're elected by the means of God and for his purposes. This is why Peter says in verse 2, that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So that will bring us to, to point two, that we are elected by God. So while election is the impetus or maybe the catalyst for our, our sojourning, it is the Trinitarian work of God. It's the salvific work of God that saves us and elects us. And so Peter says, we're elect by three things. We're elect by the foreknowledge of God in the means of the spirit sanctification and for the purpose to obedience and to be sprinkled with blood. And Lord willing, uh, if you guys will have me back, there'll be some more exhortations on, on first Peter. And we'll see that suffering is a major theme throughout, throughout this book. And Peter wants to encourage his readers throughout the book, but here too, in verses 1 and 2, just as he's opening, 
Peter wants to encourage his readers that suffering for Christ has not come randomly. But the suffering has come because they have been saved by the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he wants to remind us that before any of us were born, before any king took the throne, before any bill was passed, and long before any cultural trend that we may legitimately worry about today took place, God chose us for salvation, but in that, he also chose us to be sojourners in this world. And so I want to dive a little bit deeper on these three parts of, of, of election that Peter gives us in, in, verse, in verse 2. So first, he says, we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And there's a lot of debate over this word foreknowledge. But I don't think there should be a lot of debate. There should be very little debate over this word. I would say maybe there should be no debate at all. And the debate comes when some people will say that God's foreknowledge means that God looks into the future and sees what we will do, and then he, and then he chooses us. That's what it means by election. That's what it means by God's foreknowledge. But that's, but that's not so, right? That's just a salvation by merit. That's just a salvation by works, right? God knew you would do a lot of work in the future, so he chose you. That's not what Peter says. That's not what the Bible means by, by foreknowledge. One Puritan pastor says, says this, and I think, I think it's a v- very helpful, but let's listen closely um, to, to the language here. He says, we are not elected either for our faith or according to our faith, but to our faith, that is, elected that we might believe. So God elects us, chooses us in foreknowledge, not because of the faith he saw in us or according to the works that we would do, but he elected us and chose us to our faith so that we might believe. And so God did not look down the corridors of time in his foreknowledge. He did not look down the corridors of time and see good men and women and choose me and you and and other people. No, God looked down the corridors of time, and what did he see? He saw wretches. He saw people running for hell, and he decided to save them anyway. And so I think, you know, this part of the sermon might sound like I'm bringing out, you know, a lexicon or systematic theology, but this is no minutia. This is no small point of theological debate. This is a big deal, and it's a big deal to Peter. And he doubles down on this word foreknowledge throughout the rest of his letter. So if you look down to verse 20, the same word foreknowledge is there. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And so Peter uses the same word to describe our election that he uses to describe God foreknowing Christ before the foundations of the world. And so there's a lot of debate over this word foreknowledge. What exactly is God doing here? But what we can see, I think, plain as day from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, is that just as certain as it was for God that his son Jesus would be crucified and killed in order that you would be saved, in order that I would be saved, that same certainty our Father has about our salvation. And it's not our merits, it's not anything we do, but God's election alone. And so this is why Calvin 
wonderfully says that God is not a watcher of salvation, but the author of salvation. God is not waiting around, hoping, crossing his fingers, wishing that you would come to faith. He is the author of your faith. He wrote the book from beginning to end. So the surety of your election, of our election, does not depend on your merit. And the surety of your salvation depends, it it does depend on the merit of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And this is the good news that Peter has for us in in this epistle. And and he affirms it even more in in the second piece here in verse 2, where we just read, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, Peter adds in the sanctification of the Spirit. And so Peter reminds the sojourners that though they are chosen and set apart by God, they're doing the work. God's left them to it. No, it's the Spirit who is doing the work of making us holy. And so God does not call us based on foreseen merits, but he elects us and then makes us holy by the power of his Spirit. And so the means of your salvation, of my salvation, is not our great faith, but our great God who works in us to bring about sanctification. And so, again, Peter moves on here in, in verse, verse 2, and he adds two more things after this clause about the Spirit. He says, for obedience to Christ, to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. And so, at, don't hear what I'm not saying, but at first blush, it, this, this, this section kind of, kind of uh, confused me a little bit because at first we see the Father electing us, foreknowing us, we see the Spirit sanctifying us, and then what does the Son do? Well, we obey Him and we're sprinkled by His blood. And, and so at, at first, the text doesn't actually say this, but at first it might seem that the Son is passive in this, that the Father and the Spirit are doing a lot, but what is the Son doing. Um, So is the son passive in in our salvation? Of course, the son is not passive in our salvation. Um, Peter is encouraging us that we ought not to be passive, right? He does legitimately call us to obey here. Um, But it it is through the father that elects us and the spirit that sanctify us that we are called to, to obedience, But we're not just merely called to obedience, right? It's not nice for niceness sakes. We're not just trying to be good and upright people. But we're also to be sprinkled by by the blood. And and this theme of blood is prevalent throughout throughout 1 Peter. Again, we'll just go one place. Uh, Verses 18 and 19, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So though God does call us to obedience in 1 Peter 1, verse 2, our obedience is not the thing that saves us. It's not what causes God to choose us. It is the blood of Christ that enables us to to obey. And this is why we need to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ, the electing work of the Father, the sanctifying by the Spirit, and the sprinkling of blood precede our obedience. Those things come before our obedience. 
And, and so I think that this word sprinkling here is also maybe a little obscure. Why not say the word washed, right? Why not say dunked? If that's the thing that's going to save me, throw me all the way in, right? Um, is, is it referring to baptism? Um, you know, and though we do practice sprinkling here, I don't know if it's a direct correlation to, to baptism. Um, but this idea of obedience and sprinkling is, is a theme in the Old Testament. And we see this actually at, in Exodus 24 at the confirmation of the Old Covenant. When the Old Covenant is established, Exodus 24 verses 7 and 8 says, Then Moses, he, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Here in Exodus 24, at the confirmation of the old covenant, we see both obedience and blood. Same thing in 1 Peter 1-2. We see obedience and we see blood. And in Exodus 24, it's being thrown on the people, or we could translate that word thrown to be sprinkled. The people are sprinkled with blood at the confirmation of, of the Old Covenant. But that's, but that's the Old Covenant. Why does, why does Peter bring it up here in, in verse 2? What about the, the New Covenant? And at the beginning of, of the service, uh, we, we read from Ezekiel 36, where Ezekiel, or our, our Lord through Ezekiel, speaks of the New Covenant. And in verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will, uh, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so what Peter is pointing us to with these words of obedience and blood in, in verse 2, is the new covenant of Ezekiel 36. Peter here is pointing to a better covenant than the old covenant, a better covenant where we are no longer sprinkled by the blood of bulls and goats, but we're sprinkled by the precious blood of Christ. And the good news of the new covenant is that through Christ's life, death and resurrection, we can now commune with God. Because he has chosen us and sprinkled us with his blood. No matter our circumstances, no matter our location, we may be strangers to the world, but we're not strangers to God. And so God's people are no longer bound to a nation state. They're, they're no longer bound to an ethnicity, right? But the good news that Peter is bringing, the good news of the new covenant, is that it can go out. To everyone, right? That's part of the good news is that it can go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so one author says this about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He says, while the Old Covenant was an era driving the nations out of God's holy land, the New Covenant is an era of believers living side by side with unbelievers in patience and love. So in the New Covenant, God has called us to be sojourners, strangers, and exiles in this world where we live alongside unbelievers in patience and love. So again, we don't live in a theocratic nation state. We don't live in holy huddles, 
but we live as sojourners alongside unbelievers. So then God's exile, again, is not a sign of his judgment to us, but it's a sign of his election. The fact that we're exiles, the fact that we're sojourners, means that God has chosen us, not that God hates us. And though we were once strangers to God and friends with the world, we are now saved by God, and, and, and now we're strangers to the world. And so to begin to, to land, land the plane here, I just want to remind us of our two points, that we are exiles by election, but we are also elect by God. We are sojourners, strangers, exiles, but we are also saved by our great, our great God. Again, exile does not point to God's disapproval of us, but his great providence over us. Kind of a, maybe a difficult one to, to, to land a little bit, because there, there's quite a bit of tension in, um, in our world, in our culture. Hopefully there's none in this room. I'll find out in like eight minutes. Um, <laughs> but... But in all seriousness, there is a lot of culture, there is a lot of tension in our culture, right? I, I'm a young man, I'm only, I'm only 30, it's young to some. Um, but the America I grew up in, it's not the America that our high schoolers are growing up in, right? And I, I get that I'm not that old. Like, that's a comment on how, how quickly things have changed in, in the last few years. The country I grew up in is, is not the country it is today. And it does legitimately seem, at least from my subjective uh, place in the world, that culture is getting worse and worse. It does seem that way. It seems like society is spinning out of control. And I think we all feel that, right? We all feel like strangers in a lot of ways. We feel like strangers in this land, in the country or the state or the city that we grew, grew up in. But I think Peter's reminder to us is that our primary identity ought to be with Christ, ought to be with the heavenly city, and not this earthly city. We are sojourners here on this earth, not because of the Supreme Court, not because of the president, this one or the last one or the next one. We're sojourners not because of the governor, not because of the left, the right, or even because of global warming, whatever might make us be a sojourner, we are sojourners because before the foundation of the world, our God set us apart to be sanctified by the Spirit for the purpose of obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so here at the end of verse 2, Peter writes, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. It may be multiplied to us. May God give us his grace and peace throughout the time of our exile, now and forevermore. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, again, we think of um, your many gifts that, that you have given us. But there is none, there's no gift greater than the life, death, and resurrection of, of your Son. We thank you, O Lord, that you have called us out of darkness and into light, that you have, that though we were once strangers, you have made us friends with God and enemies with, with the world. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace and peace to live in this world as sojourners and exiles. 
Lord, it, it takes a lot of wisdom to live in, in, in a society. And we need your grace to speak and we need your grace to be quiet. We, we, we need to know when to stand up and, and when to suffer righteously. And so, Lord, we are a needy people. And again, we pray that your grace and peace would be multiplied to us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.